0: The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We'll turn in your copy of God's Word now to Exodus 21. We're continuing in our series, God of Glory. We'll be in Exodus 21, but we'll actually, uh, just so you know, we're going to reverse like a step and we'll take the tail end the last few verses of exodus 20 as we uh, get going here but we have a a wide swath of scripture to take as we uh, go now as you're turning there just to uh, picture this in in your mind with me as i uh, as i take us on a bit of a journey west if you were to uh, head out straight west of here and to make the long drive yes the drive we're not flying I mean, sure, you can take a horse and a buggy if you want. But if we were driving uh, west from here, headed towards the Pacific Ocean, You would eventually make your way to I-10, likely, just as you jog through the hill country and get on I-10, and you would head straight west until you reached those beautiful beaches and the kind of paradise climate that is the uh, Pacific coast. And Initially, as you would head west from here, you would go through the rugged beauty of the hill country with all of its pristine rivers and the beauty of the hills, but within a few hours... You would find yourself within the desolate wastelands of West Texas, wouldn't you? You who laugh have made that trek, haven't you? You who laugh uh, have gone through there, and others that haven't, you're maybe now intrigued. The best part about that is that the DOT permits 80 mile an hour speed (laughs) limits. You just fly through it, but there's, there's no radio stations. There's hardly any gas stations. There's nothing out there for hours, hundreds of miles. It's one of those places that as you're driving, you can't wait to have it in your rear view mirror. Or so it seems. But if you've ever taken the time to just slow down and to... Study the terrain and to uh, take it all in and learn the flora and the fauna of the area. To visit those intrigue and a a beauty about it all. That's really not just unique to to Texas, but if you've traveled throughout the United States, you really understand that West Texas and the, 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 the large area that it takes up is unique to the entire United States. You know what I'm talking about? And sometimes I think we view our Old Testament law passages that we'll look at today and throughout the, uh, uh, throughout the Torah here, we view them like West Texas. Maybe you, like many people, have started out on a journey to read through the, your Bible cover to cover in a year or whatever. You can't wait to get to paradise described in Revelation. You get into it, you jump into it, and Genesis is super awesome as it's explaining all these things. You see the goodness and the greatness of God. You get into the first half of Exodus, and there's burning bushes, and these judgments, and the Red Sea is being split, and and, and then you find yourself in what seems like the Old Testament wastelands of Torah. Into these laws, into these names we can't pronounce in these places, we have no idea where they are. And so we typically do one of two things. We speed through it, hoping there's nothing too important or convicting that we're reading over. Or we just give up the trip confused by what it all means and we're discouraged because we didn't hit the paradise of Revelation. But can we slow down today? Can we just take uh, in some of the terrain here and learn some lessons from this passage of Scripture? Now we're not going to get to read every single passage, every single verse uh, on uh, this morning here, but I want to just lay before you that there's an intrigue and a beauty about the Old Testament law, about these passages here. And, and church, we're, we're going to take it this morning. This is really the beauty of sequential expositional preaching. So we've been working our way passage by passage through books of the Bibles. You come to, uh, you come to sections like this and you... Just have to slow down, study it, and to see it for what it is. And so we find ourselves here, Exodus 20, 20 verse 20, or 22. And now these passages, remember where we've been. Israel's been set free, haven't they? If you're new with us this morning, if you haven't uh, uh, heard the message, we've been working our way through this book. And Israel has been set free from Egyptian slavery by the Lord and all the miraculous things that have happened. But we're also headed somewhere. See, God has set the Israelites free, but he's preparing the Israelites to live for him. They're, they're a new nation, a, a people now that have been set apart to live differently, living for the glory of God in a way that is different from the nations around them. They needed to know what to do and how to do it, how to worship God, how to walk with God, and how to work for God in this community, this new uh, a nation being formed here amongst the many nations. They needed to know how to live for the and to live for him. The God of glory, he sets us free and lovingly shows us how to live for him. And so just back up here a little bit, in, is in uh, Exodus, rather, you have 18 chapters describing the, the set free part. The out of slavery and beginning now is really uh, the numerous, not only the chapters that we're going to look at, but whole books of the Bible into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, where God will break down of how to, he will, he will describe for them. How, what it looks like to live in God's kingdom and in his presence. First he preps them, and now he lovingly shows them how. As you think of your own life, it would be interesting just to, if your book was being written about your redemption story. How many chapters would there be describing the, the, uh, the deliverance part, your life before Christ, your life in bondage, and God hearing and seeing and setting you free and bringing you to Christ? And now the chapters being written in your own life, even now are God lovingly, graciously showing you how to live in a way that honors him, how to worship Christ and walk with Christ and to work for Christ. So let's survey the terrain here. Let's see what we learn by living for him. And so like I said, I'm not going to read it straight through It'd take us you know, into the afternoon to likely do that. But I would encourage you to this afternoon or this week, in your own time, to just slow down, to read this. Uh, You can take it a chapter a day or read through it multiple times this week. But here's the first lesson. It's this, as God is lovingly showing us how to live for him, here's, here's lesson number one, that God cares about how he's worshiped. As we get to the law here, God cares about how he is worshipped. Look, look at your Bible and follow along. I will read this, uh, this passage here and several as, as we work our way along. But join me in Exodus 20, verse 22, where this really begins. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold and altar of earth. You shall make for me and a sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, this is God's word for God's people. And, and so get track with me here and where Moses is taking us and how the story is developing amongst the Israelites here. God has just spoken the Ten Commandments. There's severe weather happening, right? Uh, thunder and lightning and rain and there's trumpets and the people are afraid. They beg Moses to be the mediator. Don't let God speak to us. These words are too heavy, too hard for us. And they beg him to be the mediator, the one that stands in between. And so now as God goes to expand the laws, specifically applying the Ten Commandments, as he's speaking to Moses, he starts with our vertical priority. He comes to, to, the, to, the, to, to, to how we lovingly, how we uh, place priority on our worship. God, he initiates, he condescends, he comes near, and he speaks. Like, look at verse 22 here. That's how it says, you've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Now, that's incredible, isn't it, church? As we just think of the God of the universe, the almighty, the majestic one, the one who's made everything, that he would initiate a relationship, that he would condescend and talk to uh, humanity. See, our God is not just one of, of uh, human imagination or some sort of intellectual creation that we, uh, uh, that we uh, conjure up in our minds that can be cast in silver or gold. Our God is beyond our imagination. He's beyond our, uh, our full understanding that's why we have all of eternity to wrestle and to reason and to come to grips and understand who exactly God is. And so as he speaks, as he condescends, as he lays out how we live for him as our God, he then sets the terms for how and when and where he will be. Build an altar of the natural materials that God had created. Not they're just dirt and, and rocks, right? They were to set it up there, and they, they could not carve or improve them. They weren't to, uh, to, they weren't to be cut stones to be nice and pretty. They were just to, uh, to, to, to use the natural materials that God had hewn, that God had created. And, and why? Well, it's really just a way for God to say, I set the terms. I determine how I am to be worshipped. We don't get to just decide in our, amongst our own whims as to how to worship God. So as he begins, just like he began in the Ten Commandments, and now as he begins to expand these out, he begins with how we worship. On these altars, they were to bring their offerings, their peace offerings, their burnt offerings, in recognition of who God is, and in only the places where God had been manifestly present where he had caused his name to be known, one where they're at right now, Mount Sinai, where he made himself known at the burning bush, and here now as he's made himself known, and he's speaking to them here, where God is manifestly present, where he's revealed and at work. And now these locations will develop as the scripture develops, as God's revelation develops. It'll come, as we'll see, coming here in the tabernacle and the temple that will be built, and now it's even developed as Christ has come But see, here's the thing, church. Some things never change for the people of God because God cares about how he is worshiped. And as such, he sets the terms. He sets the terms of how we come to him. He always has. He always wills. And see, the ultimate uh, initiation, the ultimate condescension uh, of God to humanity is what? What we remembered just a minute ago. It was in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Fully God, fully man, completely God, completely man, who came inconspicuously as a baby, born, taking on flesh, and then living the life that we were supposed to live and couldn't live, and dying the death that we were supposed to die and didn't die so that we could live. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. The writer of Hebrews says, and he, his life was then the supreme demonstration of love, teaching us how to live, how to die, even how to die to ourselves, how to uh, how how to die to our preferences. See, for when we die, it is then we truly live, isn't it, Church? When when we die to our and more so, we live the eternal life won for us by Christ. Church, isn't this the gospel? Isn't this the good news of Jesus Christ being announced this morning? Of how we are saved as we embrace Christ, turning from our sin, dying to ourselves, saying, I don't want to live for myself, but I want to live as God has commanded. Trusting that Christ's death enables me to even do that. It gives me a security and a future. Do you believe that, church? I pray that you do so we can be set free from our sin God is so gracious then to show us how we might live for him and how we might worship him. See, as we come to the log, what, what does it teach us? God is showing us, he says he cares about how he's worshiped. But there's a second lesson we take away from it as well. It flows really from the first. And it's this, that God cares how we treat people. God cares how we treat people as we then bump into, into uh, chapter 21 here. The, the priority in chapter 20, uh, 20 is vertical, but on its tail then is our horizontal relationships really beginning with the most vulnerable among us. We have to get the vertical right. That's what we say. That's why we talk about being a vertical church. We're here for God. We're here to meet with God first and foremost above anything else. But it is like a builder's square. When you get the vertical right, then the horizontal stuff takes care of itself. As we come to the Lord, he then shows us how to care for people. And so look at how chapter 21 begins. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them taught you how to worship, I've given you some instruction, you need to know that I uh, care about how I'm worshiped, but here's these instructions for how you treat slaves or servants, how you uh, treat other people, uh, and how you work in the home and livestock in uh, this chapter here. And so it's just one after another of these case laws here. Now as you begin to read them, and we'll look at a few as we go through the, the, the message here, there's something that you have to know if we want to be good Bible students this morning. If we, we, when it comes to the Old Testament law, but our whole Bible, here's just like uh, one of the top hermeneutical principles as you study your Bible, and it's this, that context is king. Write that down. Context is king. We're prone to read through uh, the Bible. We're prone to read through passages like this with our personal uh, lens, it's you know, so what we know. It's, it's, it's natural to do this, but we have to be uh, mindful that we can't just read onto our own experience down into the Bible. We, can't, we, we come with a, a, a Texan uh, uh, presuppositions. We come with an American context, and we, we, we can read it as if it's a lens in which to interpret the scriptures, but there's a cultural context that we must understand. There's there's uh, uh, an author's intent and in the Bible well, about why he's writing, who he's writing to, the the what was happening in that time period and in the uh, world around them in those days that is uh, uh, that is inherently understood by the original audience that we have to seek to understand as well. This is where study Bibles come in really handy, Church. Not saying those are all bad, but not all study Bibles are created equally. We do have some good ones out there. If you don't have a study Bible, there's some for free out there at the connection desk. You can grab one after the service. But the, that's where those beginning pages of the setting, the, the the themes, the who wrote it, when it was written. That's where that stuff becomes so helpful to us. And the notes uh, that uh, that they that they write uh, make the make the scene, make the context, make what's happening uh, come to life for us. See, for example, come back to chapter 21, verse one. We read these laws of about slaves in 21, two through 6 and we in our minds we we read it through what we know as uh, American colonial slavery of the uh, African enslavement and into America and we read that but we can't read that uh, that context into the Bible there's a there's a history there's a difference in the what was happening in those days so let me just read it and then we'll talk about what it means here Exodus 21, beginning verse 2, he says, When he buy a Hebrew slave or servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. And if his master gives him a wife and she bears him some sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be your masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door, to the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. This is God's word for God's people. This is like first, like where earrings are allowed in the Bible. This is funny, okay. I can, man, I can't imagine that happening though. Like, oh, bam, not be pleasant. But see, we read a, a situation like this, and we're thinking, like, uh, you know, black and white, slavery, and that's and just not at all what's happening. See, in these days, people could sell themselves into slavery or servitude in order to get out of debt or just to survive. They found themselves in, in, in a place where they could no longer provide for themselves or their, or their children, and so they approach a person and say, hey, can, can, can I have a job with you? It was willingly, it wasn't forced. This wasn't people being stripped from their homes against their will and chained and, and taken away to a foreign place. No, this was people saying, hey, I need a job. I can't provide for myself. I, can I work for you? And God's starting here is actually such a, a, a beautiful thing as, he, as he's taking care of the vulnerable, but he is also showing the supreme value of people, of how we are created in the image of God because he's saying the slavery does, or the servitude doesn't last forever. He is actually protecting people from bad masters, from those that would take advantage of people in their vulnerable state. He said, you can only uh, work them for a certain amount of time and you must provide for them and then send them out with blessings. Send them out better than where they were. See, what is... Why 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 would God start here? Why does God this why? Because God cares about how we treat people, how He, he cares about how we treat one another who are created in His image. Who cares about this stuff, y'all. He, he our, our sinfulness knows no end of the ways to hurt people. He He knows that we 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 can we're good at creating ways to hurt people we're supposed to love to take care of. Since sin entered the world, humans have hurt and harmed one another. We who are created in God's image from the very beginning of sin entered the world, we've just been hell-bent on destroying one another. We're good at it. We're crafty at it. God knows this, and it's why he gave the laws to Israel. It's why he gave them as guardrails, as guides to keep us from hurting one another. Why? Because he cares about how we treat one another. He cares about us and exposing the depravity in our life. And this really gets to the purpose of the law. Why would God write these things anyway? Well, as we begin to read through our Bible, as we get to the New Testament, Paul will elaborate on this in Galatians and, and Romans. The purpose of the law is to expose our sin, to, 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 to teach us that, no, these things are wrong and they exist in our hearts. It exposes it for us. And, and secondly, we learn that the, why, are, why do we have these laws like this? And the ones that we'll read here, it's to actually agitate sin in us. To provoke it uh, so that it would cast us uh, upon Christ that we would know our need for a savior. That's why God gave the law to expose it, to act as a mirror to agitate it and to provoke us. And, and, and third, why do we have the law? It's well to teach us holiness, not only to expose and say, "Hey, this is wrong," but say, "Hey, this is right. This is how God wants us to live. This is what sets you apart from the world around us. See, God knows in all of us, there's this like forbidden fruit disorder. And we're told no, when we're told we can't, then what do we want? Hey, stay off the, that tall ladder, kid. Where are they going to be two minutes later? The law teaches us, it exposes us, and it, uh, vertically speaking, it justifies God's wrath as he lays out the law. He is just to condemn all who would reject his ways. So God is so gracious to teach us. God is so gracious to show us these things. So when we come to the law, he lays it out. For us so that God would be both just and the justifier this is I make no mistake about this this morning church God cares about how we treat people from the most vulnerable among us to how we live in our house how we treat one another and how we uh, handle our livestock and the things that belong to us God cares about how we treat people but he goes on he goes on at the end of chapter 21 here, and here's a third lesson for us God cares about the, even the smallest details of our life. God cares about the details of our life. The, uh, these next chapters are further elaboration on the Ten. On the, on the Ten Commandments, remember how we, last week when we were in Exodus uh, 20, and we looked at the Ten Commandments. If you weren't here, uh, you can find that message online here. But the, the Ten Commandments really formed the foundation of God's law, of God's moral law. They can be condensed down into two, Right? Love God, love others, right? The great commandments that Jesus would lay out, they can be condensed down into it. But the rest of the Old Testament law are those case laws, those expansions, the extrapolations, the applications then of the Ten Commandments into specific real-life situations in a legal sense. And so there's civil laws. Remember, this is a whole nation that is being formed, and so they need to be taught just how to live and act with one another. There's religious laws, there's ceremonial laws about how to how to worship God that will develop more fully as we go. There are these moral laws about how to treat people. And so there are these extrapolations, these applications then into their real life as uh, the people of God. You know, in a spiritual sense, just you could think of a connection this way. You know, on a Sunday morning, we come in and we hear the Word of God. There's applications that are made. There are general principles that are laid out from the Scriptures to uh, generally apply to the, to the diversity of people and life circumstances in this room. But you would go during the week, and you, as you think uh, more deeply into God's Word, you would seek to apply it more specifically, don't you? At least I hope you do. Help! hope we don't just come in and hear it, uh, hear the word, and then leave and don't do anything about it, because we're not to be hearers of the word only, but we're to be doers of the word as well. And so as you seek to make applications, what does this mean for me as a mom, as a student, as an employee, as a business owner, as a man, as a child, or whatever situation? We're seeking to make specific applications of the word of God through the ongoing discussions and accountability and study of God's word. And so These are expansions, and God cares about the details of our life. He's not just like, "Hey, here's some broad principles. Now go and do what you want. Go figure it out for yourself." Along with me, you want your Bibles open. Here, let's just take the Ten Commandments and look at some of these applications. All right, they're going to be on the screen here for us. Uh, The first five here. What's that first uh, commandment? You shall have no. Other gods before me. And so there's just some uh, abbreviations. If you want, you can write those down or take a note here. But we're commanded to have no other gods before me. And so he elaborates on that. Look at 23 verse 13. It says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. And so this is a case law. This is an expansion and application of that first law. We're to have no other gods before me, so much so that we won't even speak or talk about in an equal sense any of the gods of the land, any of the competing little g gods. Let them not be heard on our lips so that no one would be confused about who our God is. That doesn't necessarily mean that we can't ever say a name of uh, you know, another religion or things like that. But let there never be any sort of, of thought uh, that somebody could have that we would believe that these religions are just equal and all on par and that Christianity and the worship of the one true and living God is on equal ground of any of the other religions. Even in how we speak, God cares about how we live that out. What about no idols? We're not to have any carved idols. or not to have anything made of wood, silver, or gold. And with that second command, there was a curse or a warning for those who would disobey this one and a blessing for those who would follow it, right? So let's look at a further case. So look uh, back in 22, 18, and, uh, and really 19 and 20. They all kind of fit together in a triad here. It says this, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Some of y'all, I mean, the lights are bright in my eyes, but I can see your eyes are pretty bright. Like, well, this is serious, huh? Yeah, capital offenses. Why? Because each of these are creating other God's sorcery uh, the, and, and the casting of spells and other trinkets and things of which to call upon gods uh, of such depravity to, uh, and, uh, and the worship of sexuality that it would lead to such perversity as verse 19 and, and verse 20 to sacrificing to another God. No, no, no. no. All of these are true and living God. And so he's taking that further. He's expanding it into real life things. What about the third command? What's that? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in, in vain. So go down a few verses here. Here's the a, here's a application of it. Ready? 22, verse 28. It says, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now to revile God is, is also to curse him. How many of us in life when something hasn't gone our way or we're in a season of grief or pain or suffering and we're mad? God, why would you? How could you, God out of the anger of our heart. But he takes it a bit further, not even that, just to the Lord, but to revile or to curse a ruler of the people. See, so we are under the hand of the Lord. He's our King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is, isn't he, church? was a scripture teacher in Romans 13 that all of the governing authorities, people, these are people that God has appointed to rule over us. Sure, if we voted, we live in a democratic uh, uh, society, yes, but there's one vote that counts. <laughs> It's a vote of the Lord. And so he puts these people in our life, and we, uh, them, in in their day, there was honor. We're not to curse those who God has appointed over us, regardless of whether we agree with them or not. We must be humble under the sovereignty of God. Now, there's further extrapolations of this, but it's an outflow, an application of our honor for the Lord, of how we speak about even those who physically in in government over us. It's a extrapolation out. No, he cares about the details of our life and even politics, even even rulers here. What about the fourth one? You shall have, or what's uh What's the fourth one? You tell me. A Sabbath. A Sabbath that's right. I'm right, to keep the Sabbath. Look over at chapter 23, 10, and 12 here. It says, for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, that you may leave the beast of the field, uh, and, and th- what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Now here he's told to, we're told to keep the Sabbath. Why? For our refreshment. We keep going into Verse 12 here, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkeys may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Here it is, further extrapolation, how we take care of our land, how we take care of They worked. I had no rest. Now God graciously, as a reminder to say, I am God. I've delivered you out of this. You do not have limitless energy. It is me who is in control. God, not me. God who is in control. We shall let people have the rest so they may be refreshed. And so he's extrapolating it out into real life situations. What about the fifth command? Honor your father and mother. And so let's go to chapter 21. Let's see. How does this apply? How does this extrapolate out into real life? Chapter 21, 15 and 17. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Okay. This is like violence striking. Don't, don't, don't hit your parents. You do that in order to keep the peace, in order to keep uh, uh, domestic uh, uh, violence at bay. If children are striking or violently lashing out at their parents, intolerable. Pretty harsh, isn't it? But not only that, not only strike, look at verse 17. Whoever curses to speak violently, to speak dishonorably in such a way that you wish the death upon your parents is a capital offense. This is how they would keep the peace. This is how they would live as a nation. This would set them apart in a nation where honoring your parents was, was, uh, was not a thing. Dishonoring your parents, slashing out, striking your parents was the norm in society. Having wild families was the norm. It sounds not unlike these days. Do you think there are some applications of six through ten? Yeah, let's keep going. Can, you keep, can we keep going? Yeah. I know it's, it's kind of laborious. We're in, the, we're in West Texas, but let's keep going. Let's study the train, right? Number six, what is it? Do not murder. Do not murder. Look at 21. Just go back a little bit from where we were, 12 through 14. You can stay right there. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now, what's this? He's, it's real plain, shall not murder. But God is so gracious, caring about the details of our life. Know that sometimes it's accidental and sometimes it's intentional. We see this in our laws of today, Right? Accidental manslaughter, and then there's like intentional and many degrees of murder or homicide. And so the same is true. God is, is, is showing them a, a better way, a different way, and to live, to explore, to seek out the details here, even in cases where somebody has been murdered. What about adultery? What about adultery? That's the seventh one, right? You shall not commit adultery. Go to 22, 16, and 17. It says this: If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride, give the bride price for her, and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And so, what's this talking about here? Are daughters just like property, which dads can sell? No, don't don't look at it that way. Don't don't view it through an American lens like that what god is doing here is saying no our women the our young ladies are a precious commodity parents your daughters have so much worth and value and so in those days like when you were to give give your daughter away to be married there was a bride price not because she was a, a commodity to be purchased but to demonstrate the supreme value, the worth that she had as an image bearer of God and to make sure he wasn't just some you know, broke chump trying to take your daughter. But even here, I was just like, dude, we don't get the cart before the horse because she is of such value. There's a price to be paid. And if this happened, then he had to make it right by marrying her or if the doubt is like, absolutely not, he still had to pay up. He still had to pay up. Why? Because of the great worth of his daughter. These are extrapolations, these are case laws into these, into this moral foundation. Number eight, you shall not steal. Go back to 22, 1 through 4. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep. For a sheep, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. You steal things have to pay it back. Pay it back with interest. If you're trying to steal it and they kill you for it, well, if it's at night when they didn't know and they couldn't see, then uh, they're free. But if during the day when you can see and there's other you know, methods to take to prevent them from stealing, then don't kill them. But in any case, there shall be repayment. You can't just steal and get away with these things. What about false witness? Think there's anything to say about lying and bearing false witness against each other? Absolutely. Look at 23, 1 through 3. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Lots of extrapolations of this bearing false witness. You yourself should be a truth teller. But secondly, do not join with those who are conspiring to, uh, to, to pervert justice or to obscure the truth. And, and, and lastly, do not show partiality to whom you show the truth or tell the truth to. Whether they be rich or poor, whether they can pay you for the truth or not, we as God's people are to be honest and truthful no matter who we're with or what situation we find ourselves. In, in our chapters for today that explicitly talked about coveting. And so I have a challenge for you. I think there's some behind everything. I think there's some that we can say implicitly. It's speaking of, of, uh, of coveting. But I want you to study this week and see if any of these case laws that we, you read through these chapters, if you can find one, email it to me, and I'll treat you to lunch. Okay? There's an assignment for you. If you're new with us today, we don't always give assignments, but here's an assignment for you. As you read through this this week, see if there's an extrapolation of the, of the command, the moral foundation to not covet, and see if you can find one, and I would love uh, for that to happen. So what do we make of all this? What do we make of, of, of the, the case laws here? Well, here's just a few takeaways for us. It, and and here's, the, here's the first one. God loves us enough to speak into every area of our life. He cares about the details, and so he loves us enough to speak into all these areas. There's no area in your life hidden from the Lord. Your work hours are known to him. Your office hours, the, the, the home, your bedroom, what's on your phone, thats not off limits to the Lord. The variety and the specificity of the laws show that God loves us enough. We may not always like it, right? But he does see and he speaks to it. He speaks to it. And here's here's another takeaway from this. God God loves us enough to equip us. He he loves us enough to equip us. in it. He's so good not just to say it like I've said and then here lay out the foundation and then walk away. But God shows us. He loves us and he gives us help in it. You probably are familiar with this verse. It's on the screen from 2 Timothy 3. And it begins with this All scripture is what? Breathed out from God and is profitable. Do you think that includes the Old Testament laws? Is it profitable for us, church? Absolutely. These laws here are profitable. They're profitable for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. That way we, the man or the woman of God, may be complete or mature and equipped for every good work. God loves us enough to teach us to say, hey, here's how you live for me. And to, cor- to reprove us, say, hey, you're off the track. You're not living for me. And to correct us and say, here's how you get back on the track to worship me and to live for me. And then trains us then to stay on the track of obedience, of holiness. He didn't just create us, set us free. a skyscraper with no training, no education, no engineering stuff, no resources. Just saying, hey, go figure this out. I mean, if I were tasked with that today, it would be impossible. I mean, I could try, but I don't think I would want to climb the stairs to the top floor. But see, God loves us enough to show us and teach us how to live for Him, which is why we can trust this takeaway. I've heard another pastor say this, that when God says don't, He means don't hurt yourself. He's saying, hey, don't, don't lie, don't steal, don't, don't do these things. He knows how stubborn we are, how foolish uh, we can be, how we think we can build the skyscraper. I know some of y'all you are like, I can do it, no problem. Give me a few times, let me, let me read some books, let me make a few phone calls, I could do it. He knows how that when we hear don't, it makes us want to do it all the more, and yet, church, God's commands are for our good. They're for our good, they're for our protection. See, it's our, the application of our faith in Christ to believe him and, and believe him when he says, don't do that, don't lie, don't steal, don't, don't give in to that temptation, don't take those substances, don't go through with that divorce, don't dabble with those other religions, don't do that. Why? Because he knows the severity of our sin is far greater than we realize until it's too late, until we're bearing the consequences of it. Though it's greater than we realize, it's not so with God. He realizes it. He realizes who we are. He's fully aware. He takes, it, uh, he takes us to, to, to the distance, which is really where we get the last lesson from this passage here. As we wrap up, here's, here's the fourth and final point, and that's this, that God gives us grace to keep his commands. He gives us grace to keep his commands. If you weren't here last week, remember remember what, what we learned if you weren't here, I'm going to tell you now, if you were, remember? The law begins with love. A relationship with the Lord begins always in love. It always has, always will. From the Old Testament here, it began with God setting them free. The relationship began by grace with love. Then came the law, then came the commands, and then also the grace and the love to keep them. For But it's love before law. God's grace and love to keep his commands is on display in this final section here. Go with me to chapter 23, verse 20 here. As I begin, the the laws kind of come to a close in this section, and God is now commissioning them to go and live this out. There's some echoes here in the end of 23, back to Genesis 15, at the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. God's choosing, His setting his love upon Abraham and his family, his descendants from there. And now the Israelites to be his people. It was started by grace and it was carried out by grace and it will be obeyed by grace. Look at verse 21 of chapter 23. He says, pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. But, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now there's some covenantal language here, some covenantal truths that, is being, that are being applied here. He's speaking specifically of the Mosaic covenant, that old covenant say, saying, hey, be careful of how you live, and if you do this, then I will do these things. And now, we want to be good students, and so when we look at the Old Testament, there are things that are covenantally true and, uh, and applicable for the people of God here. And there are things that are uh, continually or principally true and applicable. Now, the covenant here is there's some real-life uh, real uh, consequences, real-life blessings for them. But even in our life, as we follow the Lord, there's a blessing and obedience to the Lord, the joy of walking in newness of life before the Lord. And we do that even by grace. God gives the grace to obey his commands. He will give the grace as the chapter goes on here to, uh, to where the fulfillment of the covenant would happen to inhabit and to live prosperously in the land. That's what he's referring to as you get into uh, verse 23 and all those names that we can't pronounce. there's echoes back to Genesis 15. We're saying you will go there and guess how you're going to go and inhabit that land. Guess how you're going to go and live prosperously there. By God's grace. And we get into chapter 24. Guess what? We will draw near uh, in worship. We will draw near to God by, guess what? Grace. By God's, by God's grace through his love. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near." To the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now, this is all God's grace. God's grace for them to to even be invited in, that they wouldn't be consumed. And so Moses and Aaron, the sons here, Joshua were told, so God instructs it, then it happens. Moses is there for six days. On the seventh, he gets the commands that we have recorded here, and then he stays for another 40, we're told. Verse 18 there. It says that in verse 10, look at this, that they see God. Look at it, they, they come up to the mountain or verse eight. Let's start at verse verse nine, rather. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, seventy the elders of Israel, they went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, now, now look here church, what's so awesome here is God is graciously giving them a vision similar to the one of, of John in Revelation, I think. Of, of here you can come up and see me, for you can't see God and live. nobody can approach God like that. And so God here is giving them uh, just a vision, but notice how incomplete it is. How high a, of the Lord can they see? Not even his feet. Below his feet, you see that under his feet is as high as they can see, for God is beyond our comprehension. All they see is the pavement upon which he would walk. But just the description of pavement is magnificent enough that they worship. It's magnificent enough, and and, and so much so that they're here, and even there, that, that verse 11 says that God graciously allows them, and he does not consume them. Did you notice that there verse 11 he did not lay his hand on the chief priests of israel notice god's self-restraint his invitation to draw near by his grace church god gives us the grace to keep his commands to approach him and even to live out there are commitments to obedience here in this passage also they say yeah we'll do it just like they did in chapter 19 all that the lord says we will do God gives his grace, grace undeserved, then through the sacrifice ratified by the blood of uh, of, of another through an ox and today we draw us to, to meet with God and to keep his commands. In this glorious church, you see what God is doing here, how he is preparing them and how he is uh, this this atoning act how he is laying before us and that we remember in communion. But isn't the Old Testament law isn't it more intriguing and beautiful? And imagined. I, I, I suspect there's questions even more about what's all happening here. And I love that these questions will be asked this week because, see, these chapters, they aren't the Old Testament wastelands of your Bible, are they? They're not. Yet another display of the love and grace of God towards humanity, unique in its own way, but teaching us the same gospel truths that we love and narrating for us. God's redemptive plans of deliverance and perseverance lovingly or into his presence, lovingly showing us how to live for him. This is glorious. These are glorious.